0: Acts chapter 5 is where we are, and we're in an interesting sequence of events here, watching the early church. Chapter 4 said, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart, wonderful, and one soul. Neither said any of them that anything that they possessed was his own. But they had all things in common, one for all, all for one, and with the great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or of houses sold them, and brought the prices of those things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joses, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of Consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, And brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we don't know what time process is involved here. The Holy Spirit is just putting the picture of the early church in front of us. We do know that the Lord used Barnabas, it was there again 25 times in the book of Acts, I think six other times in the New Testament, he's mentioned. And Paul's first missionary journey was to Cyprus with Barnabas. That's where he was from. And we assume that it was in Cyprus where he possessed lands because he's a Levite, and Levites were not allowed to possess land in the land of Israel. There were the cities of refuge, Levitical cities, but they weren't landowners. So his family, there must have been land in Cyprus that he was able to sell and bring that and lay it at the apostles' feet. And but it just gives us a picture. He does that in such genuineness. This is a real thing, and the church is, you know, is amazed at the the health and the things that are going on inside of its own borders. The unbelievers in Jerusalem are watching, and they're amazed. When we get to chapter five, it begins with the word "but. Which usually isn't a good thing. And counter distinction to what you have been looking at. But here's this other situation. Now, it's around money. This situation is around money. Chapter 6 is around money. It's amazing how quickly money becomes a problem in the church. It says, but a certain man named Ananias... With Sapphira, his wife, they sold a possession. This is what's going on. Barnabas did things the right way, but these people do the same thing, but the wrong way. It says, and they kept back part of the price. Take note, his wife also being privy. She's in cahoots with him. And they brought a certain part of it, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. So we have this interesting picture. You know they're (laughs) going to both be struck down dead. You know that. I mean, Ananias, you might meet an Ananias here and there. I've never met a Sapphira. Uh, I've been dedicating babies for years. I've never dedicated a Sapphira I've never dedicated a Jezebel, for that matter. You know, they're just certain names. We know, uh, you know, Ananias and Sapphira. They're, you just know about that. These two individuals. And they're brought before us. Now, Ananias is the same as Joe, Anna, Hannah, John. It's God is gracious, Ananias. And Sapphira... ...which is from the the gem sapphire, was normally translated beautiful. So you have God's grace is beautiful in these two, but that sure was a false impression uh, of these two believers. Now, it, it seems severe. It's never up to us to judge whether the Lord is being too harsh or too easy... In Isaiah, he said, those of you that are wicked, forsake. Those of you that are sinful, come to me. I want to deal with that. I want you to, to get under my word. I want it to accomplish things in your life. But here, these two scheme something up. It's much like when Moses and the children of Israel were setting aside the tabernacle and things were just being dedicated you have Nadab and Abihu there, uh, the sons of Aaron the priest. And it says they come to the tabernacle with strange fire. Doesn't tell us what it is. But it tells us that that the presence of the Lord comes. They're struck down dead and they're left there burning. Whatever it is they brought. And it's at the beginning of an epic. You know, it's the beginning of an epoch, it's the beginning of a movement. It's almost as the Lord sets that standard right at the beginning and tells Aaron don't don't mourn for them. I don't mean to do that, you know, this is what needs to happen. You see the children of Israel after, you know, 40 years wandering in the wilderness finally come into the promised land and there God has them march around Jericho. You know the story, for seven days and so forth. And God says to them, when you have victory there, the gold is not yours, the silver is not yours, none of the spoil of the city is yours, because it will be my hand, supernaturally, that brings that city down, and all of the spoil and all of the wealth is dedicated to me. And he wants to set that... Precedent for their first battle, so they understand in their hearts how victory actually takes place, that it isn't them and their swordsmanship. Incredible victory. You know what? The walls of Jericho go down, the the remarkable things that that took place there. And then they come to Joshua, the guys, and they say, There's this, we're getting some static from this small city AI here. Uh, you know, send two or three thousand of us, you know, this one fell down, there's no problem there. And Joshua says, well, go on, you know, and they take two or three thousand men, and it says the men of Ai put them to flight, and they killed 36 of the Israeli warriors, the only casualties in the book of Joshua, those 36 warriors. And of course, then Joshua seeks the Lord and the Lord says, look, there's sin in the camp. Somebody has touched the spoil, the gold and silver. And of course, from tribe to tribe to tribe, finally down to Achan and his family. And they had taken some of the spoil of Jericho. And God had allowed failure and difficulty to come because of Achan, one man's sin. And it says there that that he brought, he troubled the camp of Israel with his own sin. And then, of course, he's judged. You, You go through the whole thing here. The church is progressing, the church is growing, incredible things are happening, people are giving, they're caring for each other, it's genuine, and then you have this Ananias and Sapphira, they step into the scene, and it's almost as the Lord then uses them to set an example, the inception of the church as it's going. You know, people often say, man, I wish it was like the book of Acts today, really? You'd be singing, take my silver, take my gold, and go, you know. <laughs> Think of, you know, my heart is only after you, Lord, on the floor, you know. Or you come in, arguing with your wife on the way to church. Somebody says, how you doing? I'm doing great. Fall over, you know. So, you know, the hypocrisy here in the beginning is, is something the Lord holds in front of that church and this church. And he wants us to see it. Now look. You know, God wants us to have integrity. Integrity is from the word integer, though you math teachers. And integer is one. And the idea integrity is your walk and your talk match. When there's integrity, you are what you say. You, you, the fruit of your life is what you're rooted in. and so th- th- that's integrity. It's from integer. When you're not one, you have two, then you have duplicity. And duplicitous people do things that they say you shouldn't do. Now, we all have a measure of duplicity in our lives, as well as as myself. There are times I do things I tell other people they shouldn't do, especially in traffic. Okay. And, and all of us in, in our personal lives, because John says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a process to take our duplicity to the Lord and he forgives. But the step beyond duplicity is hypocrisy. You have integrity, duplicity, and then hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is putting on the mask and pretending to be something that you're not publicly wanting to be seen, wanting to be recognized. And it isn't just thoughtless. It's not like duplicity. You can just lash out or get in something that you know you shouldn't. Hypocrisy is planned. It's a sin that's worked out. It says here that him and his wife did this together. It says that she being privy of it, she was there. So they must have had conversations. They must have said, yeah, honey, I see that, you know, I, I can't believe Barnabas, he's loaded. And he sells one piece of ground, he gets all the attention, changes name, you know, just, you know, we should do the same thing. Maybe some people will pay attention to us, you know, we'll put it out, maybe they'll change our name. And we did to mud, but, you know, maybe they'll change our name. Maybe, you know, whatever their motive, we're not told, but it's obvious that they sat and deliberately planned to deceive the church. And of course, there are things they don't realize about their undertaking that they learn through the process. So we meet these two, Ananias and Sapphira. I I believe we're going to see them in heaven. It doesn't tell us they weren't saved. tells us that they did things the wrong way, and the Lord used them as an example. You know, if we want recognition and ambition, we come to church with our own agenda, our own pride, hypocrisy so easily then comes to the surface. And we look at this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Now they sold a possession, doesn't tell us exactly what it was, And they kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy, she was part of it, they talked about it, they decided to do it together. And brought a certain part of it, and notice we had read this twice before, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. Evidently that got a lot of attention in the early church. They're they're, they're acting like Barnabas and the others who had laid things at his feet, and they lay things at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to Ananias, well, there's a question here, by the way. It doesn't seem she's with him, though it says they. She shows up three hours later we know, you know did they say, all right, you go first and when everybody goes oh and you get all the attention, then I'll show up later and then they can concentrate on me and we don't have to share so much uh, of the uh, the accolades. So Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie, literally to deceive, to be deceptive relative to the Holy Ghost? And to keep back part of the price, and it tells us now, it was land. So this is the first mention of Satan in the book of Acts. And no doubt at this point he's he's realizing, well, if he can't beat them, join them. You know, he tried some other things. They had been threatened by the Sanhedrin. You know, That didn't make any impression. So now he comes inside the church, as he always does. There's warfare without. There's difficulty within. The enemy... He hates the body of Christ, he hates you and I, he hates humans because we're image bearers and that's what took him down. He said, I'll be like the most high. Adam, Eve were the only ones like the most high. He hates us, we're image bearers. He says, why has Satan filled your heart, not your intellect? Man is driven not by the intellect, by the heart. That's why the smartest people we know can do the stupidest things. Guard your heart with all diligence because from it flow the issues of life. The heart will always make a convert of the mind. If you let your heart play with things long enough, whatever it might be, bitterness or lust or a need of recognition or affirmation, you let that stew there and and, and perk there and distill there. The heart always makes a convert of the mind. The mind finally says, well, yeah, why not, and agrees with the heart. If it was just the brain that was the problem, you could send people to school. Nobody would have to die on the cross. It's, you know, it's the deepest part of man. He says, Satan has filled your heart, and what he's done is he's done that so you would be deceptive to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price. Now, take note as we go through this, this is recorded because there's enough Ananias and Sapphira in all of us that we need the lesson. Not of me, I'm just saying that for your benefit, but, you know, there's enough duplicity, there's enough of this in all of us where we want affirmation, we want, you know, we want people to, oh, we want people to, you know, to see us and think so why did Satan fill your heart? Why have you thought it's cool, to lie to the Holy Ghost? They had to be under conviction when they were planning this. While it remained, was it not thine own? In other words, there's no place here in the early church where they were taught, you have to sell your land and give everything to the church. They could have sold the land and come to the apostles and say, look, we're going to keep a third of it, you know, it's ours, but two-thirds of what we've taken in, and And they'd have said, great, you know, that's just great, you know. uh, There was no mandate, you have to do this against your will. They could have done it a different way. While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own in your own power? Why hast thou then conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Look, that's the thing that we all need to realize in the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is blood-bought. The church doesn't belong to any of us. And when we... Do anything self-serving, deceptive in the church. We're wrestling against God. We're wrestling against the Holy Ghost, not against the other believers in the church that we're trying to get over on. It, it's the Lord. It's yours. And when we realize, all right, we we need to get this down, Lord. This is your church. You're you're riding hurt on this. This is all yours. It's your bride. I have no, you know, rights here. Uh, I'm not entitled to anything. I have no entitlements. And that was the the attitude earlier at the end of chapter 4, particularly with Barnabas. And and he says, why have you conceived to do this in your heart? He says, thou hast not lied to men, but unto God. Now know what he's doing here. He says in verse 3, you have lied to the Holy Ghost. Then in verse 4, he tells us about the deity of the Holy Ghost, because he says here, the Holy Ghost is God. You don't lie to men, but to God. And then it says down in verse 9, you did tempt the Spirit of the Lord. So you have the Trinity there. You have God the Spirit, God the Son, God the Father, all in the person of the Holy Spirit here, as it's brought before us. He says, you've not lied unto men, you've lied unto God. And Ananias... Hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost that's dead. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. Uh, I, I believe it's great fear because they were part of the church. And as far, I believe there doesn't say they were unbelievers. And the church is gathering. There are thousands. How many are close enough to this scene as it takes place? And they see the bag of of money put down at the apostles' feet. They hear the conversation. And you know when anything like that happens in the church, it spreads fast anyhow. You want somebody in the church. The church is a group that tells secrets to one person at a time. You know, uh, Promise not to tell anybody, and then it just spreads from there. So it says, they heard these things. Great fear... And and the fear of the Lord is clean. It's not a bad thing. And the young men, now this is 20 to 40 young men, arose, they wound him up and carried him out, and they buried him. In that culture, you buried people usually the same day. And it was about the space of three hours when his wife... Notice, not knowing what was done, she comes in three hours later. Now, I believe this is a great compliment to the church, because there's over 5,000 people in the church, and three hours later, she don't know what happened to her husband. That church is not gossiping. That's really a remarkable thing for the three hours that go by, and she don't know, and thousands of people, and some of them close enough, They're, they're fearful they saw what happened, she says, "It says not knowing." Now she comes in, and Peter says to her, answered said he. He answers her and he says, "This tell me whether you sold the land for this price for so much." Now you would think, if there's any conviction in the spirit at all, she's going to go rut row, row, you know, you know. So she sold the land for a hundred grand. You know, honey, let's tell the apostles we sold her for 75 grand. And no matter what anybody says, we're going to say, no, no, we're giving everything, you know. So now she walks in and Peter looks at her and says, so, did you sell the land for 75 grand? I'd have gone, I didn't do it. My husband made me do it. I I, don't know. You know, you know, there has to be conviction when he asks a question that specific. Did you sell the land for this much? And she said, yeah, for so much. She, she just blows her chance to repent there. You know, it says in Ephesians 5, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands except when it comes to sin. No husband should ask his wife to sin. He should have been the head of that family. Of course, Ephesians wasn't written yet, but he should have known that. And she shouldn't have played along with it, so she was guilty as well. She said, yeah, that's the price, that's what we decided to do. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together, here it is, to tempt the spirit of the Lord... Behold, the feet of them that have buried thy husband are at the door. Now, the the Greek indicates that they can be heard. The chump, 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 the young men are coming. You can hear their feet. Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy, thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out as well. And then fell she down straightway at his feet. They laid the money there, and he laid his wife there, too. And yielded up the ghost, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And she was in the grave, saying, I can't believe you talked me into this. We should have never done this. Peter says to her, how is it that you have agreed together? You know, it's interesting, because we're going to, uh, in in. Verse twelve is going to tell us again they were of one accord. That's the fifth time in the book of Acts it says the church was of one accord. There's a one thing. The wonderful thing about that, but she she says here you have agreed together. It's Well, We get symphony from it. And the idea is how could you have been in harmony with him? How could you have been in symphony with him? How could you have been? you know, in cooperation with him, symphonesis. How could you have, have done that? You were in harmony with this thing. You did this together. You agreed together. And what you agreed, he says, was to tempt the spirit of the Lord. Because the Lord doesn't want to ju- judge, you know. The, Jesus said to Lucifer when he tempted him, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Yeah, I could cast myself down. And, and he would send his angels, lest I dash my foot against a stone. But it's written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I believe they were tempting the Lord doing this because I don't think the Lord wanted to strike him down. I, I think the Lord would have rather written, I struck down Ananias, but his wife repented, and I let her live. But he says here, you've done this in harmony with your husband, and in doing it, you've tempted the Lord. You've tempted the lord you know all of us in our lives you know we we have a fallen nature the traitor lives within it, it tells us that sin shouldn't reign in our mortal bodies because we have the holy spirit of god don't let sin reign but it doesn't say it's not there and galatians talks much about the the sins of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit and It says the the flesh lusteth against the spirit. I always think it's interesting he says flesh first because when somebody cuts me out in traffic, it's never the spirit that shows up first in my mind. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And Paul says these two are contrary to one another so that you can't do what you will. What he says is there's no third opinion. The flesh and the spirit are contrary to it's a military word that means they're entrenched. You know, if you if you watch the movie Alvin York, you know, just you know a, about World War One and the and the troops of World War One they were in a, they were entrenched. They were in trenches across from each other. And Paul draws a picture and he say, he says he says your flesh is entrenched against the spirit, and the spirit is dug in entrenched against the flesh. Congratulations, guys. That's what goes on inside of you. And both of that contest is strong enough. Paul says, you don't have a third opinion. You can't do what you will. It's one or the other. And he says, and these are the acts of the flesh, in case you're wondering. And the, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. So all of us in our lives, you know, obviously we have that nature that, that, that through the Holy Spirit, through God's word, we're victorious over that. It's there, waiting for you when you wake up in the morning, and it's there. But this corruption is going to put on corruption and this mortal is going to put on immortality and I believe that's going to happen soon. I believe that's going to happen soon. Then we're going to be rid of all of that. But now we have to deal with it. And sometimes because of that we fall into sin. We do things we, say we know are wrong. There's, we can be duplicitous. But the warning here is not just about some personal sin you might struggle with in your life. There's so much in the New Testament about coming, about confession, about you know remaining current with the Lord, with our struggles and so forth. This is specifically about something that is brought into the church to deceive the body of Christ, to deceive the leadership. It's been thought out. It's been planned out. This is pure hypocrisy. This is putting on the mask. And that's what they did. And the Lord hates hypocrisy. We know that as we study through the Scripture. So he holds these two up. He says, you've agreed together. You've been in symphony together. You've been in harmony together with this. And you agreed together to tempt. And I don't know if they realized they were doing that. To tempt the spirit of the Lord. So they kept back, verse 2. They were being privy. To this sin together. Verse 3, they lied. Verse 4, they conceived this thing and they lied. Down here it says that they agreed together to tempt. There's a whole process here. And behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband, they're at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost... And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. So, you know, when we get to glory, don't be surprised if you see Ananias and Sapphira. You know, if you say, are you Ananias? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He made me do it. I didn't want to do it, you know. Now it'll be, yeah, that's who we are. And isn't it amazing how powerful God's grace is through the blood of his son that scoundrels like us stand here having put on incorruption and immortality, justified, sanctified, and glorified. But God puts them before us here as we look Yeah, there was trouble without, but now he's going to show us the trouble coming within. It continues in chapter 6, by the way. So Ananias and Sapphira now tells us this in verse 11. Luke writes, And great fear came upon all the church, the ecclesia. It's the first time it's used in the book of Acts. Luke now goes to that word. He talked about believers before and so forth. But now he actually calls this community for the first time the church. And the and there says the contrast and upon as many as heard these things. So you have, you know, you have the church brought before us. There's great fear. And then it says, and there's great fear amongst the unbelievers, the outsiders that heard about these things. And, you know, word traveled by word of mouth. Remarkable. So great fear comes. Look. You have the the guy in 1 Corinthians, a sinner, sleeping with his father's wife. And when he comes in, Paul doesn't say, you're the guy, and he drops down dead. Paul tells the church, discipline this guy. Put him out. And wonderfully, by 2 Corinthians, Paul will say, he's broken. He's done. He's been bound over to the enemy. He's worn out. He's surrendered. Bring him back lest he be destroyed. But for you and I, the fear of the Lord, Psalm 19 says, is clean. Jeremiah chapter 2 says, the problem is, God says, of my people, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, they've hewned out cisterns for themselves, and the fear of me is no longer in them. But you're... Your own sin is going to reprove you and your own backslidings are going to correct you because my fear is no longer in you. The problem with the United States of America is no fear of God. No law matters anymore, let alone divine law. There is no fear of God. The babies that are slaughtered in the womb the drugs, the lying, the media, there is no fear of God. Now look, but God so loved that world he gave his son. You know, this church we look at here is filled with the Holy Ghost, you know, it's filled with the Holy Ghost. You and I, we learn the lessons that we go through. Let's get the duplicity out of our lives. Let's get the things that grieve the Lord out of our lives and say, Lord, Okay, here we are, either blow the trumpet and get us out of here, or pour out your spirit one more time in these last days and let us see an incredible in-gathering. I'm really hoping to see that. I don't know about you guys. Um, Kathy and I, when we were down the cove, Billy Graham's a training center, we were down there, and we talked to the man down there, wonderful guy, who who uh, kind of organizes it and administrates it. And we were talking in, in this room, and they have up... On the wall, this atlas kind of of the world, all the continents are spread out. And as we're talking, all these little lights are gone off and we're talking to him. And he said, you see all those lights? We said, yeah, those little things flashing. He says, we have a ministry with Internet. We have a ministry. We're still showing the Billy Graham, the old movies, phone counselors. He said, every time you see one of those flashes, that's someone who's just accepted Christ as their savior. And he said, in the last three years since Billy's been in bed, we've seen seven million decisions for Jesus Christ. And he said, I believe if there's another revival and young people will take their mobile devices and load them up with, you got to get to our study. Jesus loves you. He's coming soon. He said, if social media will light up with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will see a world change that we, Billy Graham, that we could never have changed. And I thought, that's true, man. When we were hippies, if we'd have had iPhones, we'd have lit the world up. Of course, if we'd have been hippies and had iPhones and LSD, we may have never come back to light the world up either. But, you know. You, you you think wow you know you could just because we everybody told their friends everybody invited everybody went out everybody ministered everybody visited hospitals everybody and and you think your Lord look at what's going on you know your church there's lessons for us to learn about the Holy Spirit about hypocrisy and things you have to say to us and we look at the great moving in this book of Acts the Holy Spirit fifty four times mentioned through and you look at the thousands you know Peter's first sermon three thousand are saved then. Then it tells us in chapter 4, 5,000, and it mentions men, the, the Greek word for males, plus women and children. And does that include the initial 3,000? We don't know. But the point is, there's a moving of God's spirit. And he's using mortals like us. You know, Peter, who is sharing now, who is hacking people's ears off and making roosters crow. And now he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's changing the world in a remarkable way. So Luke tells us at this point, great fear came upon, number one, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And upon as many as heard these things from without. The idea is the unbelievers there in Jerusalem. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Now, by the way, the way the language reads out, it is through the hands of the apostles, by is through, were these miracles wrought. And the thing that is making clear, if you study it, it wasn't the apostles that were doing the miracles, it was Jesus Christ doing the miracles through the apostles. He was the one that was working, and these miracles were wrought through them among the people, and they were all with one accord, there was great unity, and again, in Solomon's Portico. That's the center of activities as where Jesus walked. John chapter 10 in the Feast of uh, of, of the Winter and uh, there in Hanukkah, walked through these courts a number of months before this and, and thought about these crowds, these thousands that would be gathering after his crucifixion and resurrection. And they're there in Solomon's portico, thousands of them. And it says, and of the rest... Dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnify them. So it tells us that unbelievers knew they were there in Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch, but it's a big part of the temple there. They're visible. It's big enough for thousands to gather, but people are staying away because of the miraculous things that are taking place. And then even in their own midst, they've heard about Ananias and Sapphira. You know, so have we centuries in, you know, later. And, and the, all this activity is taking place. And it says the rest. It mentions the church. And it says the rest. No man dared join himself to them. The people did magnify them. And believers... Were the more added to the Lord, and it just says this, multitudes, both of men and women. You know, Luke tried to count them before, 3,000 on the first day, 5,000 after that. Now he just says, multitudes of men and women, thousands upon thousands, it says, are being added, um, and that's passive. This is something the apostles are doing. There's an addition. You know, back in chapter 2, verse 47, it said, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And the idea here is they're not doing it. It's happening. Jesus had told them, Stay in Jerusalem till you receive power from on high, that you might be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the utmost parts of the earth. And it's happening here. The believers, it says, were the more added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. You, you, know, you have to try to imagine. I think you, you, if you read scholars, they all say, population Jerusalem, uh, 200,000, 300,000 in this day. Some try to take it higher. But those scholars tell us that by the time the temples destroyed in 70 AD, there were over a 100,000 believers. In Jerusalem, now is that a fourth of the city, a half of the city? There's a million and a half people in Philadelphia. A million and a half. Just imagine. If each one of us led one person to the Lord a year, you know, next year there'd be ten thousand. a year after that, be twenty thousand. I mean, do, do it. Just go. In five years, the whole world would be touched. says the believers were more added to the Lord, and it's in an imperfect tense, the, the passive; they were constantly being, it continued to be added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, in so much that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that, at the least, the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. Were they all healed? Uh, that's going to say every one of them down in verse 16. Some of them must have been healed because if they'd have been there saying shadow of Peter, shadow of Peter. Yeah, we believe what everybody said, and I've been laying here for two days and in his shadow five times, nothing's going on. You know, this is a bust. Something had to be happening. So they're laying them down the streets on couches and beds, so that at least the shadow of Peter, and of course then you include the other apostles with this, he's kind of the spokesman at this point, passing by might overshadow some of them, And there came also, listen, a multitude out of the cities round about Jerusalem. Dr. Luke is telling us for the first time in the book of Acts that the church now is spreading beyond Jerusalem. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. We're going to find out as the, the apostles start to travel, they're in Samaria, they're finding believers in other places. And now it says the cities around Jerusalem are hearing of the miraculous power in Jerusalem and of this new sect of Judaism, these Christians. And they're starting to come from outlying districts and cities, bringing their sick, hoping they can lay them in the street and just the shadow of Peter is going to touch them. So they came from cities round about Jerusalem. Now the church had just been Jerusalem. Now it's spreading outside of Jerusalem, bringing sick folks. And now Luke, for the first time, says them which were vexed with unclean spirits. And here's Dr. Luke wanting us to understand there's a difference between someone who's demon possessed and somebody who's sick. You know, the church sometimes lays all kinds of guilt on people, telling them, If they're sick, if they got something, they're they're, they're possessed by a demon. The Bible doesn't know anything about that. That's nonsense. In fact, it says in Matthew, they were demon-possessed, they were lunatic, and they were sick with diseases. So they're demon-possessed. Lunatic is moonstruck. These are just crazy people, not demon-possessed. They were nutty people, demon-possessed people, and sick people. You know, we don't know the science behind that, but the the hard, the empirical data is that when there's a full moon, there's more people in mental institutions and emergency wards. Go figure. The Bible just called the moonstruck, lunatic. Here, Dr. Luke draws a difference between those that have unclean spirits, and it's the first time in the book of Acts he uses that phrase... And those that were sick, and look what he says. He says they were healed. Every one of them. There's nobody in this scene swinging around their sports jacket and slaying people. You know, there's nobody in this scene. You know, there's no Robert Tilton or Benny Hinn or insanity here. Th- these are fishermen that have been saved. These are men that had walked with Jesus unlearned and ignorant men, but these are men that had been with Jesus and were still with Jesus at this point in time. There's no sideshow here. There's no neon lights. These are guys every day in the temple precincts teaching the word of God to the people of God by the spirit of God, and the Lord is adding the fire. The Lord is the one who's healing, who's doing all these things, and he's planting the church And it's starting to come now from other cities and villages to Jerusalem. And then, of course, those folks healed will go back to their cities and their villages and talk all about this church, and they're preaching Jesus, saying he's risen, he's alive. That was the center of their message. And the gospel and the church begins to spread. Look, was it effective? Here we are, right? Tonight, here we are. Yeah, it was effective. This is the seedbed. This is... Our great, 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 great grandmas and grandpas here spiritually, you know, and it's and it's come all the way here, remarkably. So, you know, hopefully, I don't want to start the next part. We get some mean priests coming next. Then, look, you know, it's, you can figure this religiosity. Then the high priest rose up, and all that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. <laughs> They're mad because people are getting healed. You know, these guys never cut anybody any slack, you know. Uh, so we'll get to religi- religiosity next week if, if the Lord tarries, you guys read ahead. Uh, but a great night. Again, let, let's do this. Let's uh, We'll have uh, the musicians come, but just quietly, and I'm going to do the same thing. Let's just take some time and say, Lord, just speak to me now about any duplicity in my life. Lord, would you speak to me right now about compromise in my life? Or you might say, Lord, I know you've been speaking. I'm a bonehead, and you've been speaking to me about this for a couple months or a couple years or a couple decades, I don't know. And Lord, tonight, would you fill me with your spirit, the Holy Spirit, not the culturally relevant spirit, the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would you bring about that change in me? You know, David would say after adultery, murder, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit with me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. You know, create in me. Use the word that we have in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the word create something from nothing. David doesn't say, send me to the psychologist, send me to the professional counselor, send me to the analyst. He said, said, none of that's going to work here, Lord. Would you create from nothing a new heart? And the Lord would say, I'm the Lord, I change not. That's why you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He's given us His Word, and we are able to come to Him to forsake our sinful thoughts and our ways. We're able to come and expect His rain. You know, the Word is rain to come down on our lives, and the Spirit to fall upon us. We today, as we study this, can say, Lord, this is Your Word. This is the Book of Acts. You wrote this. You gave it to it. You handed this to us. And we want to ask, Lord, for you to remove the duplicity and hypocrisy from our lives, Lord. You know I've been wrestling with this, Lord, and I ain't ever going to get away from it. Except you create a clean heart within me. You need to create something I ain't got in there and put it in there, please. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to pray. You know, Jake will start to, to lead, but I, I kind of want you to sit quietly. If you're with a, your your spouse, you might want to just hold hands, pray together. If you're here with a friend, just pray together with them. But let's just take a few minutes and say, all right, Lord, we're looking at all this. What's it mean for my life, Lord? Jesus, when I sit alone with you, just you and I, Jesus, and I know you love me, what are the things that that grieve you, that break your heart, that still need the change in my life. Would you show them to me, and would you fill me with your spirit, Lord? Father, I know you've overheard. Lord, we just want to quietly for a few minutes rest before you with that, Lord. And you said if we confess our sins, that then you're faithful and just to forgive us and then to catharize us, Lord, from all unrighteousness to drain the poison out of our system and to give us healing and health. Lord, we're dependent upon you to do that. There is nothing within our reservoir, Lord, in our toolbox, Lord, that can do it, but you've been so faithful to us, you've been so gracious to us. You spread out your hands on a wooden cross and you died for us, Lord. You bled your life into the ground. You rose in power. You promised you'd return, and you've poured out your Holy Spirit, and you've, you've drawn our hearts to that, Lord, and, you, and you've asked us to trust you that beholding you by the Spirit, we would be changed in your likeness from glory to glory. And Lord, would you do that this evening, just now, as we sit quiet for a moment, Lord? Would you hear each, each one of our confessions and professions? Lord, each one of our requests? each longing heart that wants a greater filling of your Spirit. And then, Lord, when we do lift our voices, we ask that it might rise as a, as a great prayer before you, in great unison, that we be of one accord, like your word talks about this early church. So, Lord, just quietly for a minute, would you hear us?